Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. And so how do you, how do you integrate oh. the idea that we're completely and utterly alone? Oh, Mark, you're getting the cardinal question. <laughs> this, is, this is the fundamental nature of both the human experience and maybe the nature of reality itself, right? Mm. It's, the, it's the paradox of me and we, right? Convergence, divergence, you know, um, Big Bang versus are we alone in the universe? All those sorts of things. Yeah. I think... Not to sound trite, but the answer is sort of yes and. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like this. All right. Here's my best way to try to explain it based on sort of experiences I've had. So picture a field of white light, and it actually contains all the colors. It's all things at once. It's every possibility expressed. It's, it's, it's the whole universal field, the codex of all these different colors. It's great, but it gets bored because like, Wow. I know all the things, I know all the outcomes, I'm the collection of all of them. How do we dance a bit and have some fun with uncertainty? So it either goes through the Big Bang or it gets embodied in a human experience. It's like taking a prism, sticking the white light through it, and then breaking it out into all the infinite composite different unique hues of colors. Each one of them, its own particular unique experience. (sighs) Maybe that's kind of what this is about, is that we each are from that same white light source, but we are split out to express one particular hue of markness that only you can do and that the universe needs you to express, (sighs) just like it needs me to express whatever this weird timness is, that one hue color, the collection of all of these makes up that white light itself, right? So it's that we are from that same source and we are part of that, but we also are imbued with very unique set of characteristics that only you can do and that you were put here to do and that the universe needs you to express because that is part of its entire understanding of itself. That's why I think the Big Bang happened. It was sort of like, I need to play out every permutation of planets and, and comets and supernovas and whatnot and just to express all the possibilities. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Look Up. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, thank you so much for listening along. We're nearing episode 20. Uh, This is 19. I think for episode 20, I'm going to be doing an AMA. So be on the lookout for that on my Instagram account. We'll ask you to post some questions for me. I just got back from a trip to the University of North Carolina, where I spoke to the incoming class of Keenan Flagler Business School students. I wanted to give a huge vote of gratitude to the University of North Carolina for inviting me to speak there. Uh, If any of you who are listening work for a corporation or a community or a university uh, that is looking for speakers, um, I am out here traveling around, speaking about my experience with Fire Festival, talking about failure, talking about human identity, talking about external validation and fixation on outcomes and the way that we can cultivate more independent thinking in our society. So without any more distraction from me, I want to introduce today's guest, Tim Chang. Tim is one of the leading venture capital investors in Silicon Valley. He currently works as a partner at Mayfield where he led investments into a number of incredible companies, uh, including ClassPass and Basis and Moat, which both had major exits. But as Tim and I discussed in the episode, we believe that the human identity is much more than what we just do. In fact, we are more than just our vocations. 
We also have our avocations and the things that we love and who we are. And so Tim is also an accomplished musician. He performs in not one or two, but three bands. He's a bio and nutrition hacker. He was one of the early biohackers in the Valley. He brings a contagious joy with him uh, to all that he does. And I think that you will experience that when you listen to this episode. The guy had just a beaming smile on his face, even as we were unwinding some really challenging subjects with a lot of paradoxes. He's also fascinated by neo-tribalism, post-human evolution, dystopian sci-fi, and cool board games. And as I mentioned in this episode, I feel like we shot into the stratosphere. We went super high up, speaking about some heady subjects like identity, the meaning of life, whether or not we humans are alone. We talked about joy and pain and suffering, and it was just felt like we covered the whole human experience in just an hour, and my, my mind was blown after this conversation, as you might be able to hear now. I just gave it a listen. We also, of course, dive into the current tech landscape, and Tim describes some new products or services that he's seen that might be able to pull us out of the current state of the extractive attention economy. So I'll drop more information on Tim in the show notes, but enough out of me. Please enjoy this episode. If you like it, share it with your friends. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you all so much for supporting Look Up. It's been quite a journey so far, and I look forward to continuing it. So thank you, and enjoy this episode with Tim Chang. Tim, thanks for coming on the show. I'm we've been, honored to be here. We've been talking, we've been talking for, for 30 minutes already yeah. without yeah. without being on, but so much so much to cover. I mean, we were just talking about capitalism and and identifying stakeholders. I had a question that I wanted to start with or a quote that was actually something that you said on a recent podcast. Yeah. You said, my identity is my prison. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to um, just you know hear your thoughts on, on what that means to you. Absolutely. Um, when I look back on my life, I realized the whole four decades plus was a quest to figure out who am I? Because really, that's the cardinal question in all of our minds. Mm. The, really, there's only two questions that matter. Who am I, really? What do I want? Right? Yes. And those go infinitely low in the, or and, deep in the rabbit and hole. And what do I really want? What do I really want? Which, interestingly, sometimes for many of us is defined by what do I not want? Mm. And that's often informed by trauma or challenges we grew up with. Yeah. But on this who am I question, I find it's really interesting because it's like an onion layer you can peel away. Mm. If you really ask yourself into that self-inquiry authentically, you know, your top layers are the surface things. I'm a male. I'm 47. I'm Chinese. You know, um, I'm a venture capitalist, but yeah. as you go beneath that, you can strip all those things away. And as you do, you find that maybe at the heart beneath all of that could be a beautiful nothingness, which is expansive, which the ultimate answer is, oh my gosh, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Mm. Yet I am everybody. I am God, him or herself, right? When you really strip away all those other stories, because really identity is just this concentric layer of stories that we put on ourselves no more real than the character in a play that we've been co-authoring right yes. and the reason it can be come a prison is that it becomes a burden to play the character of you over those years because you have to stick with this consistency of that oh i'm a venture capitalist therefore i need to behave in a certain way i regard in a certain way people are only after me for money or for advice etc and mm. and that becomes very heavy to shoulder when you realize that 
well, that's an aspect of who you are, but you're much more and much less than that too, right? Yes. I, this really hit home for me. Uh, I got to go on a Defy Ventures entrepreneurship uh, mentoring thing in Solano State Prison. And yes. <clears throat> I thought I was going in to quote unquote help others serve. What I didn't realize is, man, I got so schooled by some of the inmates there. Yep. Some have been in there for decades and decades, maybe most of their life. I've never met more free people in terms of their minds and hearts. It, those years in there have been like meditations of letting go and surrendering and forgiveness and all these things. And to see so much gratitude and joy in some of those people it made me question, wait a minute, they're imprisoned within these four concrete walls. I walk around, quote unquote, free. Who's really in prison? Because in my head, mm-hmm. I've got all these things I'm looping on and worried about and, you know, kind of trying to um, stay consistent with, with my identity, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it was a really kind of mind-blowing question of which of us is really free in this scenario? Yeah. Right? Well, that's that's so interesting that you're bringing up prison. I'm actually in the process of recording a prison reform month for the Look Up podcast. Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed the now CEO of Defy Ventures, yep. Andrew Glazier. Yep. Um, and I actually also interviewed mm. a prison yoga project founder, mm. uh, Bill Brown. Yeah. And I just went to San Diego to a maximum security prison yep. to take a yoga class with the prisoners. Wow. Um, this past weekend. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, clerical error, error, uh. and I drove two and a half hours to San Diego and they wouldn't let me in. Oh, no. Yeah, it's maximum security, right? right. If you're not sure. on the list, you don't get in. Sure. But it's so interesting because the prison system represents— yep. Um, the way that we as humans desire to categorize others. Yeah. And when we do, we, we put them at arm's length from ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we, in the case of prisoners or criminals, air quotes on both of those, yeah. but really incarcerated humans, yeah. we identify them as something other than human. They are a criminal. Right. They are prisoners. Right. right? And so that not only do we carry our own identities, but we place identities on others. Right. We desire to categorize. We're just these big kind of pattern matching machines. Which is basically endemic of our biological programming. Mm-hmm. Our brains are designed to maximize this fitness function of survival. So it's always looking for shortcuts, narratives, categories to bucket things into because that's just the way it was designed to survive in a more... Um, scarcity environment when we were worried about getting eaten, right? Yeah. And so it's literally a battle with our neurological biology, every programming all the time in every moment, right? The thing that seeks to categorize, are you friend or foe? Should I fight or flight, right? Should I flee or should I feed? All those things. And so that's really the challenge we're we're in every day now. And you're right, that system is is endemic of that. Did you do the step to the line exercise during that... um, no, so the step to I, I line didn't. exercise is really fascinating. What it is is that they have inmates on one side and they have the mentors on the other side of the room. And there's a imaginary center line down the middle. And the step to the line, they'll call out statements like, I have been in a bar fight or I have, you know, I have, I have sold weed to a friend. And what was fascinating is that when they did the step to the line uh, call outs, the number of folks from both sides that was stepped to the line. And it was really clear that all of us had done all of these things which could have landed any of us in prison. Mm. It's just that some of us happened to be born the wrong demographic or, or race or, or class than yes. the others, right? We're, I think uh, from the mentor side, 
75% of us could have easily been in prison as well, just that we could afford lawyers or we were the quote unquote right race or something like that, yeah. you know? And a lot of that has to do with, uh, as Warren Buffett describes, lit, winning the birthing lottery. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting. We were talking about the duality of, of nature earlier mm-hmm. uh, and how there's light and dark in each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. And even if we seek to live a moral life, you know, there are mistakes that, that we make along the way yep. or we stray from that path. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to think through that some of these prisoners um, might be on the other side or vice versa. And it just really has to do with, right. with where they were born. So how, I guess one question I have for you is how do you, um, how do you work to unravel the stories of identity that you've created for yourself over time and that others are creating for you Mm. as someone who has there's a high demand for your time i'm guessing it there there is and it's sometimes made me made me a little jaded or or Mm. guarded on time too um it's a really good question I'll, i'll try to walk through several aspects one of them is i i think in my life i was always chasing action and doing to try to figure out who to be, when really the practice is the opposite. If you can figure out how to be first mm. and be comfortable with that, it's then like more possible for the doing to flow from who you are being. Most of us don't do that though. In modern times, American culture especially, we tie our identity to our profession. Mm. Like walk around here in Silicon Valley, the most uncomfortable thing for a repeat founder is when they're in between companies, don't have a new idea yet. And when they get asked, what are you working on? What are you doing? They they get so antsy. And Mm. it's because we're so used to tying our identity and explaining our identity on the startup we're doing, or the fund we work at, or the mission we're working on. Like it's so endemic that we put our identity and our work tied together that this makes me very fearful that the next era of societal crisis will be a pending crisis of meaning and identity as automation, robots, AI, do away with more of the standard commonplace tasks like driving trucks or delivery or all sorts of things. Without that clear sense of what your job is, that's going to throw a lot of people into this mental chaos of like, I have no identity. I have no purpose. I don't fit in. So we tie so much of our identity to that job these days. As jobs go away, so will many people's identity. This could be a pending mental health crisis for many folks. Imagine levels of depression, anxiety that will rise. So mm-hmm. it's our job to go create new forms of personal story creation, narrative um, for more expression, ways to have a new identity beyond just your job. Right. Mm. And so uh, that was something big for me to realize. I had a hard time even with my identity as a venture capitalist early on. True story. I was in Stanford Business School, um, graduated in, in 2001. I got into venture capital partly because all my classmates were like, you know, VC is the hardest job to get into. And growing up, you know, the product of fierce Asian tiger parents where it's all about <laughs> seeking the external brass ring. I was like, in that case, I got to go try it. And, and I got to get in just to prove I can. And, and I did. Sounds and then, like Jewish parents as well. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's probably it's... But it was funny because I never sought to ask why. I mean, I kind of thought, yeah, this is great. I love learning and you get to see all sorts of things. But then I think I was just trying to get into it to see if I could. And then I did. And then only then did I have to realize, oh, I'm a VC now. What do I do? Yes. And like my second day yes. was, was 9-11, which was crazy because like oh that God. was basically starting work right into the whole nuclear winter after the dot-com bubble. 
And just dealing with companies and startups failing left and right, hanging out in networking events and realizing, I don't really like other VCs. And so it was a real crisis for me identity-wise because, honestly, I had identified myself as just an overgrown geek. I was into, like, video games and, and, and theater and performing arts and playing music. And my dream was originally to be an astronaut, an actor, or a musician. And, and so this right-side brain part is now stuck in this very, very much more conservative, logical left-brain world. And I was trying to square the two. And it was almost like having a split personality. I used to just feel so out of place out of body because by day I'd have to be what I thought of the story of a VC, this button down khaki wearing blue shirt sort of thing, um, talking shop all the time, fiercely networking, hustling. When really at night I wanted to be writing music and performing and being on stage with other creative people creating, right? And I used to try to keep those two separate. I never talked about my creative life in the professional world. I thought it would discredit me. I would never talk about my professional life in my creative world because I thought people would think, you're the man. You're not real creative. Mm. And that was all false dichotomy. It was all story in my head. Over the years, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I just started blending the two. And uh. surprise, people responded even more. And I think it was because I was just being more integrated, more authentic. So, How long did this period of dissonance, I would call it, last between these these polar identities that you were Four or five years. I was yeah. so bought in that story of VCs have to be this way. Creatives have to be this way. Yes. When the joy and magic of life is blurring the boundaries and finding the yes and between all these things. Mm. That's the story of human in innovation iteration. It's the mixtape mashup of all these different things. Yes. So I, I love to tell people to find your real identity, fiercely own and know those things that really turn you on. No matter how bizarre, it could be yo-yo tricks. It could be like, you know, like tantric yoga. It could be whatever. Yeah. Own that. Really, really own that and find your favorite influences, you know, mimic, imitate, find out what it is about it that turns you on. And then look at the weird combination that's unique to you and find ways that you combine them in ways people never had before. And chances mm -hmm. are that'll be your unique expression that feeds into the art of your life that no one else can do. Only you, because your collection of interests expands something that no one else had thought to combine before. Right. I, um, I, I'm so happy that you just brought this subject up because it's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Mm. Um, now, I'm very curious because I had a different experience. Uh, I became an investment banker. Mm. I, was, I had parents. My conversation at a young age was, A, where's the plus? Right. And it was said in like a sarcastic way, but right. it, was, it was meant. And I know my parents were listening, so I love you guys. Yep. No, no problem. It's all good. Right. But um, but then it was like I just wanted to win. Right. It didn't matter what the game was, and it was externally measured, right? Completely. First, it was grades, right. and the grades got me into the Ivy League. And right. if I got into the Ivy League, then, then was I was the successful, and then it was the job firm. Then it was the best title. people I wore in yes. went to investment banking. Exactly. But here's the the difference. Yeah. So, I the dissonance grew so strong that I left. Mm -hmm. I stopped. Mm. Um, Banking is very different than VC. Yeah. I think VC has. Uh, and this is completely subjective, but I think there are elements of VC that um, can keep you engaged because there's a newness. Right. There's uh, there's that entrepreneurial zeal to change the world when right. you're working with founders, whereas right. banking is a lot more moving dollars around. Right. Um, so I left. Right. My question is, what motivated you to stay yeah. in spite of having this identity crisis? Yep. The magic moment was, wait a minute, venture capital doesn't have to be a fixed story of how you do it. 
the one redeeming quality about this field is that there's an infinite number of ways to do it mm-hmm. because the way that you invest is a reflection of who you are, your values, your interests. And so that magic moment when I merge my personal interests, my personal life with the way I work was when it all unlocked. Instead of chasing the hot new subject like, you know, DDoS security or whatever it is, I was like, wait a minute, why don't I just focus on what I know and love? Mm. I had spent time in Japan. I saw the rise of mobile phones. I was like, I bet you these mobile gadgets will come to the U.S. I love those. They were so much fun to play with the apps, et cetera. Why don't I focus on, you know, finding startups that bring that to the U.S.? Or I know video games. I grew up programming and playing them. Why don't I find new opportunities in gaming? I love the arts and digital media. Why, or why don't I find ways to invest in that that were more true to me? So it sounds really cliche, but sort of follow what you love and you'll probably figure out how to be good at it. Right. A lot of times I was just like you was focused on the external validation. This sector's hot. I better learn that. I'll chase that. Mm. Flip it around. Start with the B versus the do. Who are you? What are your passion areas? Can you weave those into what you do at work and maybe start to change the definition of your job and what it is you do? Right. Mm. That's when I, I was able to square the two together and say, wait a minute. This job can be more an expression of who I am as opposed to me trying to compartmentalize and shift myself towards what I think the job is about. And when you made that shift, yeah. uh, I know it's been it's been a while now, but how were you received by your colleagues, by founders, when you started to reveal that you were not the buttoned up, necessarily the buttoned up boardroom guy yeah. that you thought you had to be? Actually, people responded much more. And I think this is because people gravitate towards true passion and authenticity and most of all vulnerability mm. and so instead of having trying to have all the right answers and have all the, uh, the, the you know kind of bulletproof response it was sort of like you know i don't know if this work but this is who i am this is what i know i want to start with curiosity i want to explore is there a way to play in this this area and and with that i think the love of that just naturally bubbles up and that's infectious yes. i think again back to the sense of like can you imbue what you do not just with mission but a sense of play and curiosity mm. and love just everything flows more and it's infectious and people can see it and they resonate to that he says with a bright smile on his face <laughs> right now that's super There's, infectious i'm not gonna lie it, it actually <laughs> it's awesome it affected my friendships too because then suddenly I was attracting people I really vibed with and mm. it, it started to feel more like a tribe than just connections or circumstantial friends because as you really unlock and get to know yourself and your values and your energy there's that saying that your vibe attracts your tribe yes you will start to attract those people and you have this moment where the world opens up and you're like my people where have you been all my life yes and it's not that they were hiding from you it's that you were finding yourself more so that you're better able to see it in others and attract that and that resonance starts to build. I want I want to go back to that vulnerability that you mentioned because I think especially for young men there is a preconceived notion that if you are vulnerable in yep. business that you will be taken advantage of right. and that you cannot be successful in business without being almost like a right. like a strong man. Right. So, you know, how did becoming more vulnerable affect um again your your ability to do to do business? And are they separate? I think they're core to each other. Mm. We have such a culture of buttoning down our feelings, not expressing them. The questions we always ask in meetings are, what do you think? I think this. You know, um, what's your logic behind that? Defend that argument. There's another way to approach something, too, is how do you feel about that? What's Mm. your gut sense about that. And I think both have a lot of wisdom to bring the table. It's just that we've hyper-exaggerated more of the logic and the left side of the brain. Um, 
some of the favorite founders I know were really wise in this. They'll often say to employees, you just told me what you thought about this issue. How do you feel about it? And they've sometimes told me that the feeling can unlock these nuances that really are the root of the issue, especially in complex teamwork where there's human dynamics at play. And when you have that granularity of identifying a feeling like, you know, I feel unseen or frankly, I feel a little betrayed by my coworker. That can unlock things that logic cannot. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's all about people and people relating is the hardest thing in the world to do. It's messy and it's dynamic. But, um, you know, (laughs) completely. Right. So, but for me, as I got more authentic about it, I think people resonated. I think we are actually all looking for permission to be ourselves. It's Mm -hmm. just that there's so much pressure to have this game face on to seem like we know what we're doing, to be crushing it, quote unquote, all the time. When really, None of us are crushing it. We're plagued with insecurities and doubts and whatnot. We just want a safe space to be able to reveal that. So I try to actually lead with that when I can. I learned a great trick from Keith Ferrazzi, which is let's say you have a a dinner or a, a meetup. You're going around introducing yourself instead of the puff your chest up. I'm Tim. I work here. I do this. And we had these five unicorns trying to establish credibility. Mm. What if the other way is lead with your name, but also what's the one thing you're struggling most with in life? And what's fascinating about that is by the third or fourth person around, people are just spilling their guts. And I mean, it takes time and some safe safe space to do. But the value of this exercise, especially in smaller self-contained groups, is that you realize, OMG, we are all wrestling with the same five or six things. I'm not alone in this. I'm not crazy. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not uh, isolated in this. It's just uh, we're all pretty common in the stuff we wrestle with. And that's beautiful because then people can really be vulnerable with each other. And I happen to believe people really authentically bond through shared vulnerability and shared adversity. Yes. That's why, you know, kind of like, oh, people who fight in wars together in the trenches, they're blood brothers for life. And right? Or you go through a, a harrowing startup experience, like you're tied forever. Yes. Burning Man, that's why, you know, if Burning Man was on a fancy resort in the beach, it would be meaningless. But the fact that it's desert's hard. trying to, it's hard. The yeah. fact that desert's trying to kill you makes it so that you see your true natures. The other part I, I keep realizing, people are at their truest when they're under extreme stress or at joyful play. And Burning Man happens to bring both of those out. Yes, right? absolutely. Because you're in the <laughs> desert and it's, it's crazy, but it's so fun. That's right. Oh, man, there's so much to talk about within that. One thing I want to say for the listeners that that I'm, I'm drawing out of what you just said is a quote that really resonates with me is someone that um, shares his emotions and is vulnerable often and, and sensitive and has been actually like attacked for that in a work environment um, emotions are not noise. Mm-mm. They're data. That's right. And so oftentimes our, you know, I think the psychology shows that our our cognitive mind yep. will rationalize what we already know to be true. Yes. After the fact. That's right. And so if we can tap into those emotions directly, direct to source, yep. you know, and understand that whatever whatever story we create on top of that that's is right. just some kind of narrative that's been created to, to pattern match that emotion. Totally. Oh, uh, I'm trying so hard to get better at that. I Have you heard of the emotion wheel? It's like, no. <laughs> so, so it's, it's like this circle graph which breaks out, you know, general feeling and then uh, narrows it to very specific sub-feeling. Okay. Like a color wheel. And I was thinking this would be great to carry around in your wallet and your phone all the time and just build up your practice of emotional granularity, understanding precisely what is that mix of feelings that you feel. That can reveal a whole lot. Mm. In the West, we're so blunt with our emotions. They're sort of like happy, sad angry, joyful, but there's so many sub nuances beneath that, right? Entirely. And, and a lot of times it's not a line. 
Right. You know, the spectrum is more like a circle, right? right? Like, like joyful laughter right. that ends in tears right. or sorrowful sobbing, sure. right? There, and, and that's something that I'm really struggling with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of like, what are you struggling with is this duality. Yeah. Um, it's identifying like, you know, you mentioned, right? Just be who, the question of who am I? Right. And also the question of what do I want? Right. And then asking myself, what do I want? Right. And answering that. Right. And then identifying which answers are true to me, right. which answers are, are um, voices that are external to mine, right. you know, kind of uh, buckets that we've been placed in by our peers, our parents, right. our teachers. Right. Um, and also like having the, having the, the integrity to, um, to accept, yep. to accept when I truly want something regardless of, of subjective um, moral yep. Um, yep. you know, like, you know, we were talking about a friend, you know, like, like missionaries versus, yeah. ca- versus capitalists potentially. Right. right? right. And, and a missionary might not, might not believe in capitalism. And if, if he or she wants right. money, right. they're not honest about it. There's this should and shouldn't around the desire. Right. But like at the same time, there has to be limits to what we do and values kind of drive that. So as you can tell from me just kind of going back yeah. and forth and all over the place on this, it's a bit confusing to me right now. It really is. Money is one of these weird taboo topics because hmm. we have to have it to survive in this world, which is based on money. But it's one of the hardest things to talk about. I have so many friends that pull me aside and say, can we talk about money sometime? Can we talk about money? Because it's almost like a taboo topic, yes. right? Like, like trauma or something. And the thing is, money is traumatic for many people. And it's the thing that nobody feels safe to talk about. How much do you have? What do you do with it? How do you invest it? And we don't teach this in schools. There's no safe outlets for this. So something I'm trying to do is how do we foster more financial literacy, um, but to also recognize that money is not just store value. It's a store of karma and energy. So how do we examine the energy that an intention that we bring to our money? Is it because you're trying to just amass it for yourself to satisfy a hole in yourself that you're not good enough? Or do you want to amass it so that it can be self-sustaining, that it could be donating for all these causes you care about for the rest of your life? Or there's many things to do with that money. Mm-hmm. And to not be so fearful of it, understand that it is just a tool. It's a technology. And so with that, it's neither good or bad, nor bad of itself. It's just the intention you want to bring to it, right? And that's the one way I kind of square it. Square it. I have a lot of friends who are in the Burning Man community who are sort of healers or artists and performers, and they have a lifelong kind of fear of it. And Mm. they're almost scared to charge people for their gifts and services, you know? There's either a feeling of like, I shouldn't, I don't deserve it, who am I to ask for that? Um, And there's ways to maybe reframe that so it's not to be shameful or scared of asking for that, you know? Absolutely. Um, That there's value in, you know, what you have with that. So um, I think the thing that... uh, Again, to re-examine, just like technology or psychedelics or any of these other things that we have stories around, money itself is not good or nor bad. It's the why and yeah. behind it, that which feeds the how. What is that? There's that saying, nothing is good or bad yeah. except something makes it so. I'll look that one up. It's true. It's it, Actually, it's kind of what you said, too, sort of around the narrative and stories we put around something. Mm. You could argue anything that arises in life, it's not good or bad. Mm. It happens. The difference between pain and suffering Something painful will always arise. Suffering is when you attach that narrative to it. Woe is me. Why me? This always happens to me. This is so unfair. Victim. Right. The victim mentality that we all we all like to play. That's right. So it's unraveling stories and narratives we have around this while fully recognizing privilege, 
power structures, entitlements that we may have been born into or been lucked into. Again, back to the genetic lottery part. Yes. Right? So there's all that stuff at play, and it's to take a really good, honest look um, at yourself and the entitlement, the, the things you might have been gifted, but also the traumas that you've picked up along the way you're born with too. You know, with respect to and that things. are and that are acceptable to have, no matter where you are on the spectrum. One of yep. the arguments that I hate the most yep. is when a person that maybe has a lot of privileges is suffering. Yeah, and as you said, you know, there's a beauty in sharing vulnerably because we realize that if we're suffering, we're not alone. Right. You know, that is the human condition. It is in a lot of ways. Yep. Is is this suffering? But yep. there's a beauty to it That's as well. Right. Um, and you know, the thing that I hate the most is if is if someone's suffering, but they have all the benefits in the world outside of whatever is is causing them pain right. when they are dismissed. Right. Oh, you you have all the money in the world. What does it matter to you? Right. You know, how can you be upset? How can you be anxious? You're a billionaire, right? Like, wh- you don't have the right, right to feel emotion. I heard this term of sort of like trauma hierarchies. My trauma is better than yours, right? Yes. And, and it's, you can't because what's that old saying? Each of us is fighting a battle that no one else will understand anything about, so be kind. Yes. Right? Because the truth is all of us are, are burdened with trauma, you know, inherited epigenetically or from our parents and whatnot, as well as what we grew up in in our context. I think those traumas are all valid. They're all different. But my hope is each trauma can lead to a different gift as well. There's a wonderful saying, your gift lies next to your dysfunction. Mm. Um, I think it was Tony Robbins I heard this from too. You are most passionate about that which was denied you the most, right? That's another form of finding out your identity and your purpose in this life. The thing you wrestle with most, the thing that tried to kill you and almost didn't, that you had to adapt and survive and pick up a superpower to deal with, that's your gift. That's your story. That's a much better identity than sort of like, I was born with this name and my family is cobblers, so I need to all be a cobbler when I grow up, or, you know, that sort of thing. Usually, an interesting way to figure out your identity is the adversity that you live through or adapted to. Because I can give you a gift that you can then give to others. So that's my, that's my, that's my kind of take on... What is it? How do we figure out our, our superpower and identity? There's two forms. The thing that lights you up, makes you feel most alive, your, your best form of play or joy. And the other is that thing that you struggle most with. If you can square the two, it's really interesting. Mm. So um, I kind of have this idea of like, maybe the future is that if automation AI does away with the survival scarcity stuff, uh, maybe it gives us room to heal ourselves, the trauma we were born with or, or picked up. That informs you of your gift and superpower, enables you to be free to share that as a form of play, but maybe as service to others. So heal, play, but then serve through it, right? It's beautiful. Like the way I kind of, so I, I told you I grew up wanting to be a musician. For years, I really was going for it. I had bands. We we're trying to get the record development deal, all of that, till I got one. And you still play, right? I still play, but here's yeah. the funny part. Before, I was trying to make a living out of it. Mm. When we got the development record deal, I remember reading through the terms like, this is miserable. You're giving up all your rights. Only a fool would sign this. And the sad part is many, you know, starving artists are so desperate to make it, they wouldn't even read the contract. They would just sign it and then be miserable after. The big aha moment was, wait a minute. 
I could just walk away from this and go to Stanford Business School, but I don't have to give up music. What if there's a way to decouple making a living or making, you know, making your money from what it is that you love, that separation of avocation and vocation? Mm. That's a really interesting way to approach life, that sort of your life's work versus how you make your money might be separate. And, and it's interesting because there is a zeitgeist around, you know, self-improvement mm-hmm. that speaks to the opposite, which yep. is like, find out what you love right. and then go do it. And right. that's going to bring you the most joy. And I right. I think that's there's that's challenged in a lot of ways. Um, one way is, and I spoke about this with Max Stossel, who was on a previous yep. episode. You know, he's a poet, right. full time right. poet now. Right. That's right. where right. he makes his living. Yep. But he and I were discussing how that creates its own challenges right. because the art itself can be slightly corrupted right. when these other incentives start getting mixed into it. Oh yeah, and I experienced that when I was a yoga instructor, yep. doing something that I loved every single day. That really helped me and then becoming the yoga instructor and right. dealing with the politics of the studio and right. trying to make money off of it. And and the, the box that I thought a yoga instructor should fit into this Zen guy, right. the calm, I right. can't have neuroses, I need to be, you know, this paradigm of what a yoga instructor is, having it as work really, really did corrupt it. So it's interesting, you know, I, I, I've moved towards find your curiosity. Yes. Rather than find your love or your passion, mm-hmm. because you can have, we're multidimensional yep. and our de- identity doesn't need to be wrapped up, as you said, yep. in our work. Right. And so our work doesn't need to be what we love. Right. Our work can be the way that we enable ourselves to yeah. do what we love. That's right. It, it, that's, that's exactly right. So that's something I encourage all young people to investigate is if you could use your curiosity and look at what kind of turns you on, but also find creative ways to be curious about, hey, do I have to make a traditional living out of it? And there may be a traditional form of making paycheck out of doing this, but what are other ways? That's the art of the mashup of life is you could find different ways to do it. Um, crazy example, but let's say let's say you had a background, you went to school in machine learning, but your real love is like wine and food. But wait a minute. What if you mixed them together and there was a form of like gastronomic machine learning and that became your own field because you combine these two things, right? And mm. you figure something out. That's just like I always refer to this as sort of the mixtape mashup of these different interests. And I love that. And and uh, that's something that I've heard on on pre- other podcasts about if you – if you can be in the top one percent performers in one in one industry vertical, then you'll excel, and you know you can you can be the leader in that space. But you could also be in like the top twenty five percent of three separate things. But right. you're the only individual that brings those three things together, and Bingo. you've created that's that it. beautiful mashup. That's you your unique identity. Yeah. By the way, that's the history of how most arts evolve. Anyway, it's like some person had these two disparate interests and just found some creative way, curious way to tie them together. Mm. You know, and it's and it, it can be terrifying too because. It, you know, you're, as you said, that integration, Yes. that integration can feel so challenging, right? Like I love yoga. I love doing this podcast. I also work in crypto and blockchain, which most people probably, you know, who listen to the show have no context mm-hmm. that I, I spend so much of my time doing that, mm-hmm. right? And figuring out a way to make that, you know, a unified identity. I, I hate, hate and struggle so hard and always have with the question of what do you do? Right. What do you do? Right. I, I don't know. You yep. know, I do a lot of things. It's right. I, I like a lot of different things. It's because your identity is more than what you do. Yes. Your, your doing should be an expression of the many facets of your identity, right? So that part, I think, is, is pretty interesting. I'd love for us to learn to unwind our identity from our jobs. Mm, I agree. Yeah. And I think we will, especially as the future of work uh, changes. I want to go back to something that you spoke about earlier. 
uh, and it, it touches on this duality again. Yeah. So we talked about this concept of if you're suffering, you're not alone. Yeah. But at the same time, the the truth or one truth of humanity is that we are all alone. Yeah. And so how do you how do you integrate oh. the idea that we're completely and utterly alone? Oh, Mark, you're getting the cardinal question. <laughs> this, is, this is the fundamental nature of both the human experience and maybe the nature of reality itself, right? Mm. It's the it's the paradox of me and we, right? Convergence, divergence, you know, um, Big Bang versus are we alone in the universe? All those sorts of things. Yeah, I think. Not to sound trite, but the answer is sort of yes and. Right? <laughs> it's 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 like this. All right. Here's my best way to try to explain it based on sort of experiences I've had. So picture a field of white light, and it actually contains all the colors. It's all things at once. It's every possibility expressed. It's 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 the whole universal field, the codex of all these different colors. It's great, but it gets bored because like, wow. I know all the things, I know all the outcomes, I'm the collection of all of them. How do we dance a bit and have some fun with uncertainty? So it either goes through the Big Bang or it gets embodied in a human experience. It's like taking a prism, sticking the white light through it, and then breaking it out into all the infinite composite different unique hues of colors. Each one of them, its own particular unique experience. (laughs) Maybe that's kind of what this is about, is that we each are from that same white light source, but we are split out to express one particular hue of markedness that only you can do and that the universe needs you to express, (laughs) just like it needs me to express whatever this weird timness is, that one hue color, the collection of all of these makes up that white light itself, right? So it's that we are from that same source and we are part of that, but we also are imbued with very unique set of characteristics that only you can do and that you were put here to do and that the universe needs you to express because that is part of its entire understanding of itself. That's why I think the Big Bang happened. It was sort of like, I need to play out every permutation of planets and, and comets and supernovas and whatnot and just to express all the possibilities, you know? That's a beautiful, beautiful image. Yeah. And, and in that sense, no color is better than the other. They're just different hues. They, they might have more in common with certain neighboring hues, but they're all hues of the same white light. And is, and is then the, I mean, we're going really deep here, is the... Is a purpose in life to commune with that white light again, to understand that we are? Yes. Yes. That's the whole cosmic joke to me is that we're on this quest to find ourselves and figure out what is home. We've always been home. Home is within us. There's never anywhere to go, right? There's never yes. anywhere to leave. And and, it's and yet just, we must act. And exactly. So so it's this nature of you already are being, but you do as an expression of your being. You're doing both at the same time, right? So, yeah. And, and, and um, yeah, that's why it's so fun and so crazy. And, and I think that's the whole dance of this reality is dancing with that tension, that paradox, that uncertainty, right? Oh, yeah. And what's fun, well, what's challenging about the paradox is on the one hand, you could view it as like, oh my gosh, this is futile. There's no point to this. The other hand, you could laugh and say, oh, goody, there's no point to this. We could just play. This is art. Yes. And you mentioned, you know, you mentioned earlier the dark night of the soul. And I'm a huge, huge, you know, I love Ram Dass. I love his writings. And he has this, he has this talk called Dying into Life, which is an incredible, incredible talk. And I recommend it to anyone that's listening. And it talks about um, it talks about the dark night of the soul. It talks about how realizing this 
this truth Mm -hmm. of we are all part of this light. We are all acting out, you know, our own, you know, dance, but are incredibly alone and yet unified at the same time. And almost like there's, there's this futility that can come Mm -hmm. with that discovery. Right. Of like anything I do, it doesn't matter. Or so why do anything? So why right? do anything? I was stuck in that for a year. It was that feeling like, God, none of this matters. Why do any of this? And again, as trite as it sounds, the answer at the end was love. Love in the form of play and joy and and dancing with others and seeing yourself reflect in others and mirroring them back to them. So I think the point of all this, like the reason we have these discussions is those joyful moments where it's like, I get you. You know what I'm saying. Like, yeah. you too. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like that mirror moment of the bing, you see that thing also, right? <laughs> yeah. That's why I think human relating is here too. Like, the partners you attract, they're there to mirror both the best and the very worst of you. Mm-hmm. And you're there to grow and learn through those challenges. And at the same time, so this is, I think this is actually really a really nice segue into um, the current environment for media and technology. Yep. Uh, because at the same time, uh, while the relationships and the people that we attract in our lives are there to reflect back at us our own greatest strengths and greatest and you know greatest challenges yep. we also have a responsibility to decide for ourselves yep. we have control over our own identity yep. um, we have control over our own to an extent I believe because this is something that I'm wrestling with right now we have control over our own thoughts and our own actions and yet we live in a world where increasingly, um, the external is invading our space, right. and the shoulds and the yep. um, the recommendation engines and yep. being driven by the algorithm yep. uh, is becoming it's becoming more and more challenging to be an individual. It is okay. Now so we let's have to talk, talk about, about this. okay. Let's talk about the specifics. Back to modern day yeah, we, we, we zoomed I, out, and now we're coming back down. I will say we have unintentionally built the matrix for ourselves. At the heart of the matrix, unlike the movies, there's not some evil AI overlord. There's simply an algorithm algorithm for optimization Mm -hmm. based on a business model we chose of free and ad-based. The unintended consequence of free and ad-based, like Jaron Lanier and many others say, is that the only inevitable conclusion when you have algorithmically curated media and Instant real-time network technologies is that we end up hijacking our own attention for the sake of maximum session length to show targeted ads. The problem with that is that if you really want to get someone's attention, it's the best way to do it is poke at their fear, outrage, anger, lust, etc. centers, the worst of humanity. Because, brain because your brain is wired for that, thing. right? Uh, I, always, I, like that. I like to have the saying that I use, which is, in any given moment, the core lizard monkey brain of your programming is only deciding between what I call the five Fs. And you're trying to decide in any situation, should I fight it? Should I flee? Should I feed on it? Should I fuck it? Or should I like follow or friend it? Right? Yes. And that basically explains 99% <laughs> of human behavior in any given That's moment, awesome. right? And the point much. of meditation and all this consciousness work is just create a tiny little buffer zone between your reactivity of that lizard monkey brain versus your like human ability to respond to stimulus instead, right? The problem is that we've created these feeds and media and content ad products that that drive more of that digital addiction by constantly poking those five Fs, right? Because that's how you get a rise out of somebody. It's how you get attention. It's how you stand up above the noise of infinite content available. So we have been imbued with basically three brains. We got our lizard brain, our monkey brain, and we got this wonderful prefrontal cortex, which is able to create technologies that change our environment to make it more suitable for our survival. We can make things more convenient. We can make them more abundant. We can make them, you know, fast free shipping, all this other stuff. Now we are in the age of abundance 
uh, at least you know in America here in the Bay Area, we have more calories than we possibly consume, more content than we could ever read, more yes. sort of sex than we could ever have, all these things. But we are still hobbled with the scarcity survival mindset brain. And the impedance mismatch of those two is modern humans' dilemma. Basically, picture mm. picture a, a cocaine addict in a warehouse full of crack and then being told, here you go, self-regulate. We have basically created so much temptation and impulse um, trigger for ourselves all around in every moment that we need now meditation apps and digital detox and retreats to try to control our impulses against all these impulses and and um, uh, choices abundance around us. And it's hard. The amount of willpower and cognitive load it takes, no person can do it. Right. <coughs> and so that's, again, back Absolutely. to these business models we chose. We try, we create convenience to make our lives easier. The hidden cost of convenience is disconnection with the thing that you tried to make convenient. Case mm. in point, once meat is in a McNugget, do you know where it came from? Do you care? You have no idea. Is no. it really even a chicken? You know, it's just a nugget. That's right. No. Also, in our apps, these like, like Lyft, Uber, everything else, we've dehumanized people. They're almost like robots. Mm. Don't talk to me. You're not human. Just give me a ride. You know. So yeah, I saw there was a joke about you know ordering a silent Uber, which I think is like in a way it's kind of funny, but it's That's also right. cruel. That's right. I'm living this right now in Mill Valley. We've had no power for a week because we're reliant on the very convenient centralized grid of energy. What might happen now is as climate collapse starts to kick in, we return to decentralized systems where we learn to be more self-sufficient and mindful of everything from our food, our water, our energy production and consumption. I got to tell you, I had no idea how much trash I generate daily until I went to Burning Man. <laughs> wow. and, and that was the, the benefit of something like that. It's Maybe it's the age of inconvenience to help us be reconnect and be more mindful of all these resources we use and consume now. Right, mm -hmm. the age of convenience for convenience' sake had a hidden cost and toll that the earth can't bear anymore. Right, so if age one of technology was to create all this convenience to make things easier and easier, maybe age two of technology is to reintroduce some helpful, mindful inconvenience friction to put us more back in touch with this stuff that we tried to abstract away, whether it's ourselves, other people, mother nature, food sources. You know. Yes. Yeah. It's it's truly like moving towards connectivity. That's right. The great irony of of Web two is yep. that it was it was built to to improve social connection, right? And in some ways, it just it created this strange um, disconnection because it was surface connection. Mm -hmm. It was about look, it had all the metrics of how many friends I got and retweets and reposts and hey, I'm on a boat, right? Maybe <laughs> what People if people love posting on boats, right? But what if, what <laughs> if true social media? was less face-based, not Facebook, but soul book. Yes. Hey, I'm struggling with this right now. This is me. I'm dealing with this. I'm sad about this. You know, those sorts of things where maybe that's really connection based on true vulnerability mm -hmm. as opposed to those surface celebrations. Now, I, I, I hear that. And I think there's also a slippery slope there because mm -hmm. we, you know, I spoke about this on a last episode. Mm -hmm. You know, vulnerability theater is also very real. Yes. It's uh, like, yes. oh, this. I see that this works, right? Like first it was when I post travel photos that works, but then everybody posted travel photos so people got bored. Right. Now it's like, oh, you know, I'm actually struggling. I'm vulnerable. And, oh, that worked. I got attention. Right. Right. And now it's like, again, it goes back to that intention. Right. Intention. There's a, that, I love that you bring that up. There's a term I've heard, which is performative vulnerability. Yes. I'm being vulnerable because I want to get hearts and sympathies and likes. Yes. 
again, the intention is, I need attention, right? What if the other way would be sort of like, I have been struggling with this and here are my learnings from it. I want to share this because I picked up these gifts or insights through it in case they resonate with someone else. That is a form of maybe sharing in the spirit of, of authenticity, but also kind of service as in opposed service. to, hey, I'm a victim. I need help. Give me love. You know, that sort of thing. Yes. Right. So uh, you, you nailed it. It's intention. And the two tie together so much intention and attention. Right. Yes. You focus your attention based on what you put intention into. These algorithms today of infinite feeds and like donut pictures and Instagram and all those sorts of things have taken away our intention and hijacked attention. How many times have you been down an Instagram rabbit hole where you were like, damn it, I just spent 45 minutes looking at like, you know, really posh resorts and I didn't mean to, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 even being conscious of all of this happening and knowing that this yes. is going on and that my attention is being hijacked, I still struggle with this That's very right. much. And, That's right. You know. I interviewed Nir Eyal as well, and he wrote this book, Indistractable, oh, yeah. which just came out. So That's he right. talks a lot about this idea of right. traction, right. which is yep. which is your intention. Mm-hmm. It's like, why am I doing something like this? And yep. hopefully that that um, that can help. Um, I I my I struggle with something uh, around the framing of these problems mm-hmm. here in in, mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. What Douglas Rushkoff calls the techno humanists. Yeah. The idea that technology got us here and we're going to use technology to get us out. Yep. How do you reconcile that? You, you know, like, are you are you looking at new technologies that are going to be more intentional yes. and less attention extracting? Yes. And is that the solution? Or I think, you know what it is? It's back to going inside and understanding ourselves. It's healing our traumas, knowing what they are, mm. like freeing ourselves of that identity around your job. It's all those things. They have to do with inner self-work rather than techno-utopianism and then mm. like, oh, tech will solve everything. Again, tech is just the tool. Intention first, study ourselves. What is it you want? Who are you? Those cardinal questions. Yes. As you unlock those, we'll find better ways to use technology. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I, yeah. I'm interrupting, but, but this, if, if first through fifth grade yep. were were who am I? Yeah. What do I want? Yeah. I think the world would be an infinite, be- infinitely better place. It really could be. What if maybe, you know, in future, a lot of what we learn in school is not factoids and memorization since you can look it up on Google, but more emotional intelligence, true expression, um, connection authentically with others. Um, and, and a lot of it too, frankly, also healing from those traumas you picked up because many of us are shaped by how we were raised or even yes. epigenetic trauma we picked up you know from day one a set of like samsonite baggage you didn't even ask for but you no, got you through your parents realize. right yeah and and so i agree with you it's, it's it'll <coughs> take a reform of what education and self-development self-learning is uh, in schools even from an early age and then technology might be able to help with this in the sense of here's one example it's sort of Mark, you tell me the lifestyle and, and the goals, the the aspirations you want. Let me craft a set of tools to just help you keep on track with your goals that you stated. And the point is, you own your data. It's all for you. I'm trying to create digital Buddha, digital pocket coach to help serve you yes. as your guardian angel. I do not want your data to go resell to other people for ads. I simply want these tools to help keep you on track um, based on the goals that you specified. I'll show you how all the algorithms working in real time just for you. And you'll pay me to be... 
basically your coach, your support system, yes. your guardian angel on these things. And I'll give you a money back guarantee on this monthly or yearly subscription. I'll get you those results. Work with me on this. You know, that's how Hollywood celebrities stay in shape. They have no choice in the matter. They basically yeah. have, you know, nutritionists for the coaches. Right? <laughs> so they have that support system. Could we democratize that for everybody? And so mm. I joke, it's almost kind of like a digital nanny. It's like, imagine like <laughs> two years from now, like you're binge watching Game of Thrones and then like it's 11 p.m. And then Alexa says over the, over the, over the system, it's like, Mark, I know you're binge watching Game of Thrones. This final season is pretty awesome. But you told me you want eight hours sleep. Your calendar says your first meeting is 8 a.m. tomorrow. I'm turning off out of the house. Go to bed now. Right. Yes. It's it's because it's we can't regulate all our impulses anymore. It's too much choice. So we almost need technology to help us narrow things and keep ourselves on track based on the goals we give it. Mm. Right. And that's the difference. You choose the goals you want to be for yourself. Let the system serve you in that. But that service, that serve that service has to be truly in service to you, not advertisers or reselling your data, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And you're and you're setting the intention. Once yes. again, that's crucial. Now here, slippery slope again, right. right? This is why this is such a hard problem to solve. Exactly. Because we are then saying, well, the technology, we are we are um now relinquishing control of our own behavior again to an external party, mm. right? In this case, the algorithm that is your nanny. Right. And, and it, it, it harkens like the sci-fi film that just came out, Mother. Totally. Right, which is like, or hey, episodes I'm of Black for, Mirror, right? Yeah, I'm in this for you. I want you to, right. to be the best version of yourself based on these goals that you set for me. Correct. And this ties right back to business model, which is intention. If this was run by Google or somebody, already the incentives are misaligned because yes. they want to sell your data to advertisers. Or if it's Amazon, they want to sell you more stuff. This has to be an agent that's your uh, advocate. It has to, in some ways, belong to you. Maybe the better model is, is that it's open source or something. You know, Maybe yes. it's a nonprofit foundation that runs this and that you're sovereign over your own data. So we're going to have to look at these type of models. We can't just use the old business models for them. Yeah, the old business models, I think, are... are They're extractive extractive and and you could i think we realize with all of these with many industries right now you can only extract so much yep. before the system starts to that's right to break i also had one other idea to really make this human centric follow the patterns and time-tested traditions of things that work like alcoholics anonymous other types of integration circles and maybe also wrap a peer support you know kind of peer listening structure around it as well yes so it's not just you on this quest to join the 6 a.m club or something but you got five teammates they could be your friends or or even strangers who want to do the same thing and you're keeping each other accountable and the tools are just there to be your support system yes. in in achieving that and there's actual human coaches along the way to make sure you're not going off the rails right so i think we blend these two together this sort of offline human peer support for it as well as just these tools that just help us make it more efficient. And I think that's I think that's so crucial yeah. that community element. Yeah. And it's it's just it's so fascinating because we are ultimately responsible for ourselves. Yeah. Going back to this this alone versus yep. connected. Yep. And yet we are part of the hive mind that's and right. when we have the support of our peers or yes. or just that little bit of extra pressure saying yes. like hey you told me you signed up for 25 minutes of deep work right. and we're building a little tree in forest right. together. Um, don't bail on me, dude. That's right. You know, that accountability. Right. Accountability is a big one. Um, you know, it makes me think of when we lived in, in small villages and tribes, 
there's probably less mental health and, and loneliness issues because, frankly, you're all connected. Everyone was up in your business. They knew everything about you anyway. Now, probably not the most private of spaces, but the point is that <laughs> the whole community would have an intervention for you if you're like, trying to go off the rails or something. And there was probably yeah. an elder council to help out with disputes and mediation, right? So there kind of was, quote, unquote, no privacy back then. Mm-hmm. But everybody was seen and supported, right? And one of the biggest key human needs, I do think, is that we all just want to be seen, witnessed, recognized, right, and supported. Does, does community scale? I really believe that it should because I take the word tribe seriously. I really want my friends to be a tribe and I love cross-connecting them and I marvel at how quickly the tribe organically grows and to the point where I kind of think at the end of the day, we're all just one big meta tribe. But community also never happens accidentally and it's always prone to factionalizing and, and things like that. So it has to be carefully tended and cultivated and curated. How do we, how do we cultivate communities that can scale and have... Uh, and, you know, and well, how do we cultivate communities that, that can scale? I think it's around inclusiveness, invitation, and actual curious listening. That's mm-hmm. the hard part because whew, a lot, what's that old saying? The medium is the message. We've taken community into online tools and it makes it so easy to hide behind pseudonymous, you know, identities or to make snarky comments and have no accountability for these things. When you're in person, we tend to be better behaved with that. And the problem with the digital fragmentation and decentralization of all of this is that we have a semblance that we're in a real community, but the dynamics are so different than when you're in person, the body language, the eye to eye, you know, those sorts of things, right? So I, my hope is that as we foster community online, that'll feed more offline gatherings. And I think we see that. Like yes. today, there's a there's a hunger to gather offline, you know? There's meetups and... And, and, and men's circles. Men's and circles and, and, and Burning Man and all these events. Yes. We crave that in-person communion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my dream is that there's a dance between offline and online that feed each other. Like you keep the bonds going, you met at the offline retreat through online, but that drives more interest to meet up again and, and, mm-hmm. and expand and invite more people into it. So it has to be this yes and, it can't be either or, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, oh man, I'm I'm like recently just, I, I, I listened to uh, some Kapil Gupta and I think that's, that's oh, a good reason. <laughs> Some uh, You know, like I, I feel like I've been invaded. Yeah. Uh, but I love Kapil. He's he's great. Yeah. I mean, and and I think there's so much room for for that. Yeah. Um. That that he's hardcore. That harsh like truth it's, it's about like, truth, hey, like yeah. you are alone, and this is your responsibility. And right. and I think about how important it's. It's so. It's right now yeah. for me. Yeah. It's so frustrating yeah. to reconcile that I am simultaneously completely and utterly responsible for. Um, for my own behavior, for my own habits, for for understanding and representing my own desires and and path. Right. And at the same time, you know, I'm a social animal. Right. And I seek external validation. Right. And I need community just like anyone else. And That's so right. I can't be alone. And it's this it's this constant, you know, like you want to be in community, but then there's this performative nature of community. Sure. Right. Even with Burning Man, we That's come right. back, That's coming back right. to Burning Man, there's this, this performance of it. Yep. So. I I'm actually just, think that's why a lot of people who become truly enlightened, they just say, screw it. I'm going full monastic and go to the top of the mountain. They're like, 
you know what? It's all a video game. I don't need to play this anymore. I'm no longer tied to loop of like eat, don't get eaten, procreate. Um, other people, you know, they're on their own journey. I can't really help them. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm self-sufficient. Because at that point, you basically don't need to be in the system anymore. That's yes. a very logical conclusion. But the other way is, actually, I'm going to stick around and stay in relation to others. And it's messy and it's a pain in the ass and whatever. People are, people are a nightmare to deal with. But there's joy in the dancing and relating with others. Yes. Right? So that's that that is a choice I think you do make. In the play, and one 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 um, characteristic that I've noticed in in individuals that I find to be, you know, somewhat enlightened or who have really, really done a lot of self-work is they almost have this this uh this absurd sense of humor about things yes oh yeah <laughs> you know? oh yeah Osho, like, ellen watts all these ways like yeah. you can just kind of laugh at all because i think again cosmic joke there's a lot of humor in the whole thing there is right? you know and i'm so i think i'm trapped currently or i have been in this in this middle in kind of the middle step which yeah. is a lot of these questions are surfacing now yeah. again and i almost notice how they're coming back and i'm like hey i thought i dealt with that question like three years ago right and it's like no buddy like that's that's how it works it's going to keep over going back. and over and, and i see and yeah, yeah. it's a dance i see the car the karmic humor and it that's all right. that's uh, right a little bit. The way I've kind of squared what you've been wrestling with because I wrestle with the same yeah. again back, tying back to my experience in music is it's up to me to learn which my instrument, find my voice, build up my capabilities, find my expression, say what I want to say. But half the joy is jamming with other people because they play totally different than me. And we come up with weird hybrids or concoctions when I blend my style with somebody else's unique musical footprint, right? Mm. Again, back to the color analogy. I got my one hue of weird purple that I am. And if, when I blend that with other people's weird hues, some kind of strange funky combinations come about. And that's sort of fun. Yes. I mean, the other way I could say is like, that's futile. We're just all <laughs> white light. I'm just going to go back to white light done. In the game, right? but, 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 you know, it's, <laughs> I think we're well, here we to dance. We're we here to dance with each other. And that's interesting because maybe the purpose of life is play. It is play. It's art. It's just art. It's just fun. Art exists for art's sake. There's no point to it. <laughs> yes. And yet, and yet, you know, we spend so much of our time not playing. You know, in spite of that. That's right. And it's like, maybe we should just be playing all the time. I think so. I think that's what the future is. That's for me what the bright light is after automation and UBI or whatever it is that happens to put us hopefully mm -hmm. in a more post-abundance era is we're just here to play. Really, yeah. um, again, heal, play, and then play to serve each other. Yes. <laughs> you know, like that's my, my recipe for it. <laughs> I love it. And and what what has service service to others done for you in your life? It's teaching me more to shut up and listen. I heard this great quote once. I think it was Naval Ravikant who said this. Said all the strife and conflict in the world, it's not evil people trying to take over the world. It's all white knights beating each other up over who thinks who should save the world better. And so it's basically good intentions <laughs> at battle with each other, right? And so. That even my own desire to quote unquote serve and help the world, like there's ego that smacks of that. And what yeah. I'm trying so hard to do is let go of that, just shut up and listen. It's sort of the savior complex problem is when you go into some area you think you're trying to help, you already have a prescribed notion of what you think is better for someone else. When really you should shut the F up and listen and maybe immerse yourself and try to experience what they're experiencing first and then have a better clue of how to better help and serve. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. I mean, there's a prescriptive nature of service. There's an ego-driven nature of service. There's a pleasure-driven nature of service. It's Again, it's back to this duality of, of all things. It's That's like, why I got so schooled at Defy Ventures. I thought I was going to quote unquote help and serve. And I was like, oh, my God, I am the one who got schooled. Oh, you my know? God, yes. That's what's the irony about all this stuff. So 
I mean, this has been so fun. I, I want to ask, like, what's singing for you these days? What are you most excited about? There's a couple of things. So I've, I've been, there's someone very dear to me who's really put me back in touch more with connection and purpose. And, and that is of, of service and elements of activism and, and questioning the structures and societies we come from. It's working on these big, juicy problems like climate change, future food, future of work, identity, but also visiting all the way down to the bottom. Hey, maybe our definitions of what value and what profit are and um, corporate stakeholders and shareholders and cap tables and timeframes. It's the maybe doing a firmware update to the the rules of the game we're playing with in capitalism, democracy, investing, entrepreneurship, that right? Yes. Also, maybe blurring the lines of what's a for-profit and what's a non-profit. That gets fun. That's creativity in its own way. So I'm looking for allies there, case studies to learn from in, in creating new models beyond just pure consumptive capitalism. Um, and uh, I'd say the, uh, I think the other, the other big one is um, looking at Again, you know, just sort of myself and trying to blend all these fun, funky, disparate elements and create, keep creating my own sort of mixtape, right? Yes. And uh, find other allies in that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just trying to keep dancing this dance of, of life. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for thank you for joining me on the show. I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. I know that your yeah. your time is in extremely yeah. high demand and. Yeah. Um, I hope that everyone that's listening, I'm sure, has kind of felt your joy coming through the microphone. I hope so. Uh, I mean, I, I can see it here. It's like it's it's a beaming smile. Uh, it's awesome, and I feel like we touched on some 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 fun, uh, some fun, challenging, you know, subjects that really underlie a lot of the the more specific. Uh, challenges that we that we may be facing as a society, whether that be climate change, yeah. um, whether that be you know the the consumptive and extractive nature of tech. That's right. It, it fundamentally comes down to some of these some of these questions. Yes, it's our internal choices, right? And our, again, intention. What are we doing with this? And and also the reactivity of that fear. When I work on some of these issues, I sometimes have a lot of fear and anger that rises up. Like God, we can save the world, change this stuff. But also, I kind of realize that's not a sustainable place to do it from. There's got to be also a form of joy and play and love that you tackle these things with as well. Otherwise, yes. you burn out. Yes. And there's there's a that's not to say there's there's not a place for anger and fear. It's an and, energy. It's an inspiration too. And yeah. it, and it's there. And, right. and it's okay. And I think many of us get into these loops when we when we feel that emotion that we have a we have a, a should or shouldn't around. That's right. Um, but I agree. I think you know it, it isn't sustainable. That's right. Uh, it isn't sustainable to come from those That's places right. when you can come from That's right. from joy and play. That's right. That's right. And, and curiosity. Like mm-hmm. when you really, really zoom out, like on a geological and galactic time scale, this is the ultimate curiosity, which is like, you know what? We might not make it. And that's okay, too. <laughs> Human and geological history has been filled with like giant catastrophic moments, with them, which led to future flourishing, flourishing after. Mm. And who's to say two billion humans on the planet's not, not worse than, you know, like nine billion people or something. Maybe it's much, much better in many ways. You know, so yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We don't we don't know the answers to these questions. It's just it sure is going to be interesting. Sure is going to be interesting. And let's do our best to help each other out in, in, on, on the on the way there. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. I'm going to share uh, some more info on what you're working on uh, with the audience. And yeah, I feel like there's a lot for me personally to process from this conversation. So thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your gifts. Awesome.
Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. You can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium and Facebook. Uh, We have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Look Up Podcast um, on Facebook. So check us out. Uh, You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up podcast. (laughs) 